Welcome back to my continued retrospective on the year 2009 in film. You might ask, why 2009? To be honest, I was browsing around streaming services and saw interesting films from different years, but decided to pick a year at random just to discuss. As we move on into March of that year, Americans were able to see the Russian adaptation of Twelve Angry Men, the classic play that was turned into a Sidney Lumet movie, about a jury that is all set to convict a young man of murdering his father, until they carefully examine the evidence, motive, and testimonies, realizing that it is just as likely, if not more likely, that the defendant is innocent of the crime. And as a fun fact, an American jury is legally allowed to find a person on trial innocent regardless of whatever evidence is presented. They can move for a mistrial if uh, the prosecution feels as such, but the jury is under no requirement to actually declare the person guilty. Anyway, this version, directed by Nikita Mikolkov, was simply titled 12. I wouldn't normally bring attention to a film originally made and released in 2007, except that it did receive some decent awards as it gained traction on the international stage, even winning an Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film. Part of the reason that the film garnered so much attention, where a remake might not normally, is that Mikhailkov updated the story to be a bit more relevant to the time and place, whereas in the original version, the ethnicity and history of the defendant is not made very clear. In this version, the boy is Chechen, there are flashbacks to his growing up during wartime, and the ending is somewhat altered to allude to an off-screen conclusion of vigilantism. This makes it worth at least seeing once. Next, we get Horseman, produced by Michael Bay and Brad Fuller. This is a psychological horror thriller wherein Dennis Quaid plays Detective Breslin. The story is reminiscent of Seven, as Breslin examines the suspects in serial murders that seem to all tie back to the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, from the Christian Book of Revelations. This film is dark, gritty, gruesome, and gory. It's more for the fans of films like Saw and Hostel that enjoy seeing gruesome murders as part of a horror story and supposed mystery. I don't really recommend it unless you already like that sort of movie. It's evident that Springs saw the release of a lot of independent films as the next one we look at was first screened at Sundance in early 2008 but did not see wider release until March the following year. Phoebe in Wonderland is the story of a girl with obsessive-compulsive disorder and Tourette's syndrome, who befriends an effeminate boy who gets gay-bashed, and together they join the school play of Alice in Wonderland, both facing struggles as they try to share in the joy of the stage. The film was written and directed by Daniel Barnes, and stars Elle Fanning, Felicity Huffman, Patricia Clarkson, and Bill Pullman, among others. At the same time that Phoebe was entering Wonderland, audiences were flocking to the superhero film Watchmen, based on the graphic novel of the same name. This Snyderfest marathon of a movie is full of slow-motion footage set to badly chosen songs for the soundtrack. It features Snyder's whimsical overuse of altering the playback speed to either slow down or speed up, and often featuring graphic depictions of violence. Sadly, this was the beginning of the dark and gritty Snyderverse that took over the DC Cinematic Universe for a couple of years, leading to a series of films that were less and less fun to watch. Back then, Snyder's company was called Cruel and Unusual Films, now called The Stone Quarry, and it's appropriate because this film is punishing to sit through. It's small wonder they changed the name as so few things are as gritty as a stone quarry, except for a Snyderverse adaptation of comic books. The film takes liberties with the graphic novel, omitting a lot that ends up featured in the recent HBO series of the same name, and which frankly, I enjoy a lot more. But as it is, I do not enjoy this film at any point. The low point for me is the sex scene set to the Leonard Cohen song, Hallelujah. Believe it or not, when I saw this movie in the Cineplex, someone brought in a baby. Later on, I actually tried to watch this movie at a faster playback speed, and it made the film just tolerable, even if the length and pacing on it was still tedious. 
If you have not seen it, then you've missed nothing. Snyder's films spurred a generation of edgelords, and Watchmen gave him a lot of sway with studios. Another 2008 international film released in March of 2009 was John Maybury's The Edge of Love, written by Sharman MacDonald and starring Keira Knightley, Sienna Miller, and Killian Murphy. MacDonald is notably the mother of Keira Knightley. The film is loosely based on real-life events surrounding poet Dylan Thomas and his close bond with his cousin, Vera, played by Knightley, and his wife, Caitlin, played by Miller. This all takes place during the days of the London Blitz, as Vera escapes to the country. Things come to a head when Vera's husband comes home from the war and is suffering from some antisocial tendencies. The story concludes with Dylan committing perjury on the stand against Vera's husband in court, although she and Caitlin remain close. Vera's husband is found innocent and the story comes to a close. I think the main reason why this film did not get a lot of press was simply because it was a story of two female friends. The poster and title seemed to suggest a sapphic relationship between the two women, but nothing in the story lends itself to that. Given the only horror movie thus far for March was Horseman, a far better known film came next, called Last House on the Left. It's actually a remake of a 1972 film based on a story and film by Wes Craven, who also co-produced this version. The story follows an innocent enough premise of a family going on vacation to a lake house when the daughter takes the family car to visit a friend in town. They meet a guy who winds up being tied to a family of criminals, Things get further out of hand as the daughter guides them back to their family's lake house, and the rest is pretty gruesome. Although I've heard of this film, it's never really made the impact that many of Craven's other stories and films had. It seems a little bit like Stephen King's early stories, where it's worth comparing the different versions of The Shining to see which one you like. Appropriately for March, Fox Searchlight decided to release Miss March, a spin-off from the team behind the IFC series, The Whitest Kids You Know. The story is rather contrived, as young man Eugene has been in a coma for four years, finally awoken by his friend with physical assault. It turns out that Eugene's former girlfriend is now a Playboy bunny, leading to a plot by the two to sneak into the Playboy mansion and reunite. Hijinks ensue until, finally, the couple reconnect, and it turns out that she never stopped caring about him. The film includes lesbianism for the male gaze and a joke around a man having a congenital defect of his genitalia. Sad to say that this was the final appearance of Hugh Hefner on film, only because you would prefer that his memory not be tainted by a cameo in a sophomore boner road trip comedy. The writing duo of Krager and Moore haven't really worked together since then, but Krager did write and direct the recent horror film Barbarian, which I know very little about as the ads don't tell you anything, but the plot is a bit overly contrived and unsatisfying, not unlike Miss March. Entering into mid-March, Disney brought us the reboot Race to Witch Mountain. For those who don't know, the Witch Mountain series was a somewhat popular two-film franchise in the 70s. The 70s series is about a couple of kids who are both humanoid aliens with strange abilities. There was also a Disney made-for-TV movie that was a remake which took even further liberties, where, just like Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, the aliens are extra-dimensional now, because in this case it's saved on the budget. But for this big-budget reboot, the alien spacecraft are back. This time, the kids are mostly escorted by Dwayne Johnson as Jack Bruno. The two kids are brother and sister, Seth and Sarah. They're pursued by the Disney version of the Men in Black from various media, X-Files, Men in Black, and so on. Although the film made back double its budget of $50 million, it did not spawn a sequel the way that the 70s film did. This was one of only three family films released in March, making it easy pickings for Disney. The next film, Duplicity, was written and directed by Tony Gilroy, and stars Julia Roberts and Clive Owen in a star-studded film with a plot around corporate espionage and romance. It just barely made back its budget, but has a rather solid story. One reason why this film may have flopped is that it is not told chronologically. Much like Premonition or Knives Out, the story goes back and forth to unveil what happened. It sounds like a fun enough film to watch a couple of times to figure out, and could easily become a favorite on streaming given enough of a chance.
As March rolled on, we saw John Malkovich in The Great Buck Howard, an underappreciated comedy drama about an older, struggling mentalist based on The Amazing Kreskin. It sees a young man named Troy leave law school and wind up being a road manager to Buck Howard. We then see Buck Howard gradually climb back into the limelight after years in obscurity, despite a long and celebrated career prior to them. The movie only made back a million dollars, but features a lot of talent in front of the camera, including Emily Blunt, Griffin Dunn, Steve Zahn, and real-life magician Ricky Jay. Lastly, this was written and directed by Sean McGinley, who is mostly known for independent films that attract decent established talent. Overall, I think this one seems worth a watch. Next up, Paul Rudd and Jason Segel in I Love You, Man. Directed and co-produced by John Hamburg and co-written by Hamburg with Larry Levin. This film represents a genre that I have not covered too much, the bromance, as it focuses on a strong friendship between two cis-hetero men. The friction that is the source of comedy for the film comes from Rudd's character Peter being at odds with his fiancée Zoe when he befriends Sidney, played by Siegel. The film's story works on the necessary levels for a good romantic comedy without the heteronormative sexual overtones and brings to light the need for emotional reflection among men before making big life decisions like marriage, as well as the need to connect with others organically as individuals, instead of just going through the motions of rote habits. I think that although this one had some praise at the time and made back its budget, more people need to see this, especially men. Moving on, we have the Nicolas Cage sci-fi thriller, Knowing. To say that this film was in development hell for a while is an understatement. When it was bought by Sony's Columbia Pictures, it had a revolving door for directors before finally being picked up by the smaller production company, Escape Artists, who have a deal with Sony on their releases. It was filmed in Melbourne, Australia, despite being set on the other side of the world in Boston. The film follows a series of seemingly random numbers written by an elementary school child who hears voices. The paper bearing the numbers is placed in a time capsule for 50 years and given to students at the same school. Nicholas Cage plays the dad of one of them, who while reading through the numbers realizes that they coincide with the dates and coordinates of incidents like the Oklahoma City bombing, September 11th, and so on finally concluding in numbers that suggest a massive solar flare. The film ends with a vaguely religious image that seems rather odd to insert. It made over four times its budget back between box office and home video sales, but I fear that it fed a lot of people's fascination with apocalypse theory, as it even features an ending straight out of the X-Files. Next is a very low-budget superhero comedy called Super Capers, The Origins of Ed and the Missing Boolean. It features a huge cast of B-list celebrities and cameos and was written and directed by Ray Griggs, who even has a small part in the film. It's a rather cute story meant to be somewhat family-friendly. It was made for only $2 million and took back less than 31000 But it has seen new life on cable and elsewhere and features some fairly original ideas for its story. A fun fact for this is that although it tanked, leaving no room for a sequel, the movie does feature one of the earliest post credit scenes indicating a sequel. Another fun fact is that the protagonist's name seems to come from a 1987 comedy bit called Taekwon Leap, aka Boot to the Head. As it is, I remember reviewing this one a while ago on my YouTube channel, and did not have a lot to say about it. The film has evangelical overtones by the end, making it a bit awkward. Late in March, we got the action thriller 12 Rounds, starring John Cena. This is a high-concept action drama about a man caught in the middle of a game being played on him by arms dealers as he tries to work with the FBI to stop them. The game consists of the eponymous 12 rounds that he gets put through. I don't want to spoil it for you because it sounds like a lot of fun. With a rather small budget of less than $7 million, the film made back almost three times that with $17,300,000 from the box office. Critics noted that it had similarities to Die Hard with a Vengeance, aka Die Hard 3, which is ironic as it was directed by the director of Die Hard 2. As it is, the film spawned two sequels, Reloaded and Lockdown, starring Randy Orton and Dean Ambrose, respectively. 
At least the producers stuck with former wrestlers as their leads. Another independent film originally released in 2007 for the Tribeca Film Festival, The Education of Charlie Banks, stars Jesse Eisenberg and was directed by Fred Durst, better known for heading the late 90s rap metal band Limp Bizkit. It's set during the early 80s with Jason Ritter as ex-young offender Mick. Charlie fingered Mick for a brutal assault when they were in high school, and as Charlie carries on with his life, Mick reappears, seemingly carrying out some kind of bizarre scheme. I cannot even find this to watch, although all involved have gone on to do more with their careers. The reason is probably because the film barely made $15,000 in the box office. Our last horror film for March is the hilariously claimed to be based on true events film The Haunting in Connecticut. It's a mediocre ghost story that tries to use spectacle to make up for lacking originality. The supposedly true events that were largely made up by some folks who moved into a former funeral home to live in, but an investigation by skeptic Benjamin Radford found no proof of the claims that morticians performed necromancy there at all, and the film's alleged secret symbols that play a major part were pure fiction added by author Ray Garten, among others, at the behest of a paranormal investigator couple who just wanted to stir up intrigue. Sadly, this makes the film a bit of fluff, with the pure fiction concocted for it undermining the pleasure for the audience. The last film for March is Monsters vs. Aliens, produced by DreamWorks and distributed by Paramount. It features an amazing cast of talented actors, a cute story, a female protagonist, and is genuinely a lot of fun. I first saw this a couple of years after it came out and loved every minute of it. It spawned a few shorts, including two TV specials, and even had a short-lived Nickelodeon TV series. It had a big budget, and it made back twice that at the box office, and is loved by many for its originality in concept and terrific gags. April brings us another deluge of films, and the first one up is Adventureland, written and directed by Sidney Kimmel. It features an all-star cast led by Jesse Eisenberg and Kristen Stewart. Set in the late 80s, the film follows James Brennan as he takes a summer job at Adventureland, an amusement park outside of Pittsburgh. The film is billed as a comedy drama, but from the plot sounds more like a melodrama. It centers around James having a love triangle with a co-worker named M. A lot of the co-workers at the park hook up and get involved in intrigues, especially after James, frustrated by not getting closer to M, reveals to the gossip mill that she is sleeping with a married man. After the word spreads, M leaves for New York City and James is waiting for her outside of her apartment. The film makes it seem like this is okay behavior, but it just seems to be saying it was okay to stalk someone in the 80s because reasons. The film did not make back very much, but got critical praise, though I'm not exactly sure as to why. Alien Trespass is a mock B-movie, spoofing the alien invasion movies of the 1950s. The cast is made up of a lot of well-known faces, and despite mixed reviews, it is considered a bit of a gem. It never quite found an audience, apparently, because they could not decide whether to make the film a nostalgic parody or a faithful reproduction. However, for many critics, they did enjoy the conceptual, abstract allusions to such notable films as The Day the Earth Stood Still, War of the Worlds, and It Came from Outer Space. But I'm not surprised that it fell flat when the baseline comparison for a send-up of B-movies is the Rocky Horror Picture Show. How do you compete with the likes of that? Next, although The Escapist saw its initial UK release in summer 2008, it saw a release in the US in April the next year. This film was co-written and directed by Rupert Wyatt, who later went on to direct 2011's Rise of the Planet of the Apes, which was a remarkable improvement on the franchise in my opinion. So, what was The Escapist all about? It's a dual narrative about a prison break, both before and during The Escape. This film features a clever twist that I won't spoil for you, but that I think you'll like, so check it out. I will mention at this point that I am skipping over a lot of films, simply because some were documentaries, others were not as important to me for the sake of discussion. That said, the fourth film in the Fast and Furious franchise is among them. Fast and Furious is just not important to me. We all know what it is, 
it's a sequel that was meant to revive the series after the third film, Tokyo Drift, seemed to be too far from the source material. Apparently, they brought back a lot of the original leads. I would not know. This series is not for me. And everyone already knows about it. I have nothing to say. It's popular, and I generally try to let people enjoy their popcorn and flicks. Another 2008 independent film that got wider release in April, Gigantic, is a comedy starring Paul Dano, Zoe Deschanel, Ed Asner, and John Goodman. Dano plays a mattress salesman named Brian Weathersby, who for some reason wants to adopt a Chinese baby, given the one-child policy there in the People's Republic of China, and then meets his wealthy manic pixie dream girl, Harriet, a.k.a. Happy. Dano is best known for later playing the Riddler in the DC grittier-er reboot, The Batman. That's all I can tell you about this movie. It's one of those art house quote-unquote comedies where it mostly saw pre-screenings at Vassar and Cornell. This one can be found fairly easily, so although it is rated R, I don't see much that is controversial or upsetting about the story. But if you were interested in seeing the early works of Paul Dano, then there you go. Now, Paris 36. Set in the 1930s, Paris 36, original title of Faubourg 36, is mostly told in flashback during a confession. The man confessing was the stage manager of a popular music hall called Chansonia, or Place of Song, and the film tells the stories of the venue and the people working there. Paris 36 was considered a flop, but critics generally agree that it's enjoyable and above average. This one is not hard to find. Another 2008 film getting wider release in April was Sugar, written and directed by Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck. It follows the life of a young man named Miguel who goes from playing baseball in his home country of the Dominican Republic to a minor league American team. The story is genuinely a noteworthy didactic about when you're young and full of ambition, and how there are different dreams to chase beyond the big flashy ones. I'd give this one a watch. Now we come to a film that was in development for seven years, and really underperformed. Dragon Ball Evolution. As soon as you give something a subtitle like Evolution, you are advertising that this is going to be unoriginal and rely on a carbon copy premise that has nothing to do with the source material. Seriously, the plot is like a Mad Lib of Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces, but with Dragon Ball characters. Even the tagline of Master Your Destiny might as well say, This film is unremarkable. And the big-budget schlock doesn't end there as Disney gave us Hannah Montana, the movie, in which protagonist Miley Stewart gets overwhelmed by her career, and so she goes back to Crowley Corners, Tennessee to get some perspective. It made back five times its budget of $30 million. Honestly, since this was a film for kids and tweens, I did not see it and have no interest in really analyzing it. It basically just resolves the main issue of the TV series, which is she takes off the blonde wig to show the world who she really is. Sorry for the spoiler. If you watched it and enjoyed it, fine. No judgment if you still enjoy it today. Up next, written and directed by Jody Hill, we have Seth Rogen in Observe and Report about a mall security guard named Ronnie who wants to be a police officer despite having mental health issues. I really do not know how much of an obstacle that is at this point, considering how often they find police suffer from untreated mental health issues currently, today. The story largely seems to justify vigilantism and random violence, with a romantic comedy wrapped around it. I can understand why this film does not get a lot of replay. Next, from New Line, we get Seventeen again, starring Zac Efron. This film got a lot of praise for a family film with a plot that is basically the reverse of Big with Tom Hanks. In this film, Mike gives up on a basketball championship game to go after his girlfriend, throwing away a chance at a scholarship. Years later, he's facing a divorce, two estranged teenage kids, and he feels stuck in a rut. He becomes young again and goes to his kids' high school where he learns about who they are and decides to help them. 
As soon as he lets go of those lingering doubts and aspirations, he turns back into a grown-up and is able to reconnect with his wife. In all, it's a cute enough story, and I can see why it performed well. Next, American Violet was another film released in 2008 for the Telluride Film Festival, but released to wider audiences in 2009. It's the harrowing and inspiring story of a young woman named Dee, who is framed as a drug dealer to face a plea bargain or fight the system. With the help of an ACLU attorney played by Tim Blake Nelson and a former narcotics officer played by Will Patton, Dee takes on the system of so-called Texas justice. This film features an amazing cast and is based on real-life events from late 2000. And unlike The Haunting in Connecticut, this film stays very close to the real-life events of the story. It has a very high approval rating and is praised by critics for the rich narrative and stunning performances. Speaking of stunning, Crank 2 High Voltage was the sequel to the 2006 film. In this film, a former hitman named Chev has his heart replaced with an artificial heart meant to give out in an hour. From there, the race is on to get his vital organ back. Considering that the heart is behind a lot of flesh, bone, and cartilage, I kind of want the premise of this story to be a prank, and he really has his heart the whole time. But no, the ridiculous premise is real in the story. The fact that the final scene of the movie before the credits is the hero flipping off the audience says a lot about the filmmaker's respect for the viewer. And a scene during the credits shows him get his heart back. I think the fact that the hero and by consequence the story lacks heart throughout says all I need to about this sequel. The only notable parts worth looking into are the filming techniques used. From the ridiculous adrenaline-fueled world of Crank, we go to the political thriller State of Play, based on a novel of the same name. In this film, a journalist played by Russell Crowe investigates the mysteries surrounding the death of a woman tied to a congressman, not only through work, but because of a steamy love affair. The senator is played by Ben Affleck, breaking away from his usual roles. Although it made back 150% of its budget, making it not a commercial success by some measures, it has been highly praised by audiences and critics as a tightly written thriller with fun twists. Mid-April and HBO brings us Grey Gardens, starring Drew Barrymore and Jessica Lange. It tells the story of the real-life relatives of Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. The story is named for the family estate in the Hamptons. There's not a lot to say. It's praised by critics, won several awards, including Emmys and Golden Globes, and was inducted into the Film and TV Hall of Fame. So it's worth looking up and enjoying at your leisure. Next up is the very imaginatively titled Fighting, starring Channing Tatum and Terrence Howard, about the world of underground fighting for gambling. It made back a little more than its budget, and is about as original in its plot as it is for a title. It feels like someone wanted to make an updated version of Raging Bull, but didn't understand what they were doing, or had executives telling them to, no pun intended, punch up the script. Director Dito Montiel also co-wrote the screenplay, so it would not surprise me. The film had a better life on DVD, apparently, as a lot of people must have gravitated towards owning a copy. Late April gave us frequently asked questions about time travel, a British sci-fi comedy written by Jamie Matheson, who wrote for such series as Being Human, Dirk Gently, and three seasons of Doctor Who. The main actors you'll recognize are Chris O'Dowd and Anna Ferris. Put simply, this film is a bit of tongue-in-cheek romp about the weird things that can happen with time travel. It has the same reverence as Bill and Ted, but with some of the pithy humor of better British comedy. It was co-produced by HBO and the BBC, and distributed by Lionsgate. From comedy, we go into drama with The Soloist, starring Robert Downey Jr. and Jamie Foxx and based on the real-life virtuoso musician Nathaniel Ayers, who suffered from a lack of support for his mental illness and wound up homeless, as discussed in a book of the same name by Steve Lopez. The film failed to make back its budget, as is often the case of films discussing mental health and the impact of sanism on society. 
Critics said that the film lacked a narrative focus, despite excellent performances by the cast. But all that tells me is that the critics wanted a story where somehow Ayers got all better, instead of respecting that mental illness does not simply go away because it is inconvenient for others, and that it is not a burden or barrier to establishing healthy relationships with others who are not diagnosed with any mental health issues. The film does not apologize for highlighting that a person with an issue like schizophrenia is still a person worthy of inclusion, and that Ayer's exceptional gift for music is as much a part of his mind as his disorder. Inseparable. If you want a fairy tale ending, go watch a fairy tale, I say. And now we slip into May with the sci-fi CGI action-adventure Battle for Terra. The film features an all-star cast and a director-auteur who conceived the story based on a short film. Essentially, it's Avatar before we had Avatar. It's Battlefield Earth with the races reversed. Basically, humanity colonized Venus and Mars, then the three planets fought, leading to all three being uninhabitable. Now I feel like I missed out on a much more interesting story. Anyway, so they loaded up the survivors in an ark and are trying to resettle on Terra, where an endemic race are already living. I won't ruin it for you from there, but the moral of the story is that colonialism is bad. That said, you'll have to watch it yourself to decide what you think. Most people find it slightly above average, but as noted, it is not an original story idea. The start of May also gives us Ghosts of Girlfriends Past. It's taking the plot of A Christmas Carol and applying it to a womanizer. He's attending his brother's wedding, where he's haunted by the ghosts of girlfriends past, present, and future. In concept, it sounds predictable, but in execution, the result was better than average, as illustrated by box office returns of almost three times the budget. This film went through five years of development before hitting theaters, surprisingly enough. Originally, it was going to be released through Disney subsidiary Touchstone, with Ben Affleck in the lead and Kevin Smith directing, which means this could have been part of the Askewniverse. Apparently, Affleck actually believed in the film enough to want to produce the film via his own company, despite both he and Smith opting out of the project. This was one film that critics do not like, but that a lot of audiences do, showing that sometimes the critics are wrong. I've seen parts of it and enjoyed it overall, and when it's brought up, people generally like it. This film may be derivative in concept, but it's the final result that matters with the audience. And still at the start of May, Jim Jarmusch wrote and directed to bring us The Limits of Control, the story of an assassin called Lone Man, who is on a mission in Spain. The story essentially has Lone Man following a daisy chain from one contact to another through Spain from Madrid to Seville to Almeria and finally to Bernas Desert. Pardon my mispronunciation if such occurred. Filmed on a budget of just $2 million, the film features an excellent cast, including Bill Murray, John Hurt, and Tilda Swinton. Critics panned it for having a slow pace and quote-unquote inaccessible dialogue, which just tells me that it did not spell everything out, and made the audience wait. However, in stories about assassins, the assassins themselves are not always quick to move, and the vagaries about Lone Man's assignment and target are as much a test for the audience as the character. The film is also praised for showcasing Spain using beautiful cinematography. Personally, I think the film sounds worth a watch, as it requires you to pay attention and enjoy the story unfolding. Up next, another movie about an assassin an independent film from 2008 that saw a wide release at the start of May. The Merry Gentleman stars and was directed by Michael Keaton, while being written and co-produced by Ron Lazzaretti. It's the story of Frank Logan and Kate Frazier. He's a professional hitman, and she's a woman on the run from a bad marriage to a police detective. Frank doesn't especially love his life and regularly contemplates ending it all. But Kate helps him find some little piece of happiness, as he considers leaving the life behind. In very little time, a Chicago detective named Murchison warns Kate about Frank's work, and she wants nothing more to do with him. In a moment of introspection, Frank weighs his options. 
to end it all or to carry on the life of an assassin. In all, it is surprising that so many films get made about assassins, with two of my favorite comedies being The Baker and Wild Target. Given the ending, it's understandable why this movie failed to grab audiences. Despite critical praise, Lisa Schwartzbaum called the film a Debbie Downer in Entertainment Weekly, and the title seems bitterly ironic considering Keaton had been looking for a directorial debut and saw the opportunity when Ron Lazaretti suffered a medical issue that prevented him from directing. The producers claimed that he was not working hard enough to cut and promote the film and sued for breach of contract. That said, the film was shot in less than a month in and around Chicago, using local talent as much as possible. So if you're looking for an interesting film and don't need a happy ending, then this should suit you, even if the title makes little to no sense. And still yet, at the start of May, we have a suspense thriller that premiered at Cannes three years after it started filming. Originally written in the 1980s, The Skeptic, also known as The Haunting of Brian Beckett, produced less than $7,000 from box office returns, despite talents like Tim Daly, Zoe Saldana, Tom Arnold, and Andrea Roth. Written and directed by Tennyson Bardwell, this film sounds absolutely fascinating. Set in the modern day, it's the story of a man who uncovers dark chapters from his past and explores questions about the afterlife that he had denied up to now. I'll be honest, this film sounds amazing and well-written for a ghost story, and the ending is immensely satisfying. It does not make false claims to be based on true events, and does not try to force the audience to believe in anything. You just have to suspend your disbelief for the film, like in Ghost or The Frighteners, the latter of which is a personal favorite, of course. This one sounds like it is really worth a watch. Still at the start of May, next we have the attempt at starting an X-Men prequel franchise in X-Men Origins Wolverine. I think at this point almost everyone has watched this movie. It made back its budget and then some, but audience felt it was middling to below average. Personally, I enjoyed everything but what they did to Deadpool, and the film Deadpool 2 took care of that. CinemaScore actually agrees with me and gave the film a B+, which is about what I would give it. If you respect it as a fun superhero movie, it's fine. It uses its cast well and made me want more, which we never really got. A sad fact for this movie is that it led to a couple of kids getting hold of some mercury and injecting themselves with it to get metal bones. The thing to remember is that everything in the film is supernatural to what we have. The adamantium in the story was heated to liquid, not liquid at room temperature. Mercury is very poisonous to your body and can cause you a lot of health problems, including liver failure and brain damage. Also in the movie and the comic books, Logan has a healing factor that meant he could tolerate having heated liquid metal injected into him. Safety warning aside, thankfully, when the other X-Men prequels were cancelled, many of the story ideas got integrated into the plot of X-Men First Class, which I also enjoyed a lot. Finally, moving on from the 1st of May, the rest of the month brings us Love and Dancing, as in the film's title. This features Amy Smart, Tom Malloy, and Billy Zane in a rather formulaic and derivative story of a love triangle that emerges when Amy Smart's character, Jessica, goes to dance classes, but Zane's character, Kent, her workaholic fiancé, cannot join her. The dance instructor, Jake, played by Malloy, steals her eye. Jessica falls in love with dancing and shows a talent for it, so Jake asks her to be his partner for the National Swing Dancing Competition. But Jake's unfaithful ex, Corrine, is a judge. Can they win the competition and navigate the maelstroms of love and dancing? As I noted a moment ago, the plot is very unoriginal, so it is no surprise that I had never heard of the film until now. It's also not held up well among critics, where it has received low scores on Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic. The next thing delivered to us in May 2009 arrived Next Day Air. In this dark comedy, Donald Faison and Mike Epps play Gutch and Brody, 
two crooks who accidentally get ten bricks of cocaine meant for their neighbor, Jesus. Hijinks ensue, but the dealer and his boss are on the hunt for their missing drugs. The story does not end well, since I did note that this is a dark comedy. Critics and audiences agreed that the film was not that great, despite it making back thrice its budget. Sam Adams of the LA Times noted that the film lacked a singular tone, shifting from a stoner comedy to a gritty crime movie with deep conversations and gaping plot holes. Roger Ebert had more praise, apparently not quite seeing it strictly as a comedy, and called it violent and profane but never vulgar or inhuman. In theaters, Next Day Air got buried among all the competition from April and May. I would say that if you don't mind a sad ending, you might enjoy this, but otherwise, give it a miss. The next film May beamed in was the infamous J.J. Abrams reboot of Star Trek. This hyperactive version of the beloved TV and cinema franchise notoriously had writers from Lost working on it, who intentionally stole plot points from the original Star Wars trilogy, even going so far as fully admitting it on the DVD commentary. The story itself made very little sense until you realized that fact. Kirk is a young man of destiny growing up in a bad household, meets a sage in a wasteland, and destroys a massive ship capable of single-handedly destroying an entire planet. If you loved this film, I can't fault you, as it was immensely popular, making back more than double its $150 million budget. Though I feel, obviously, that it was less worthy of the mantle, as Paramount Viacom has seen fit to put the reboot franchise aside, and even the Star Trek comedy Lower Decks has made a few jokes at the expense of the reboot. The so-called Kelvin timeline and its style corrupted the look of other shows in the franchise from Discovery to Prodigy, which both represent more of a science fantasy aspect to things than the science fiction of previous entries. To elaborate, science fantasy often does not play as much with the science part of things. Star Wars and Battlestar Galactica are both science fantasy, as is Resident Evil and many others. The things in the different iterations all exist because the plot requires them to. Science fiction can be something as simple as Robocop. What if a man was turned into a cyborg to fight crime and was controlled by a soulless megacorporation instead of either being controlled by a government or allowed to be independent? As for the film's pacing, it was fine. But the use of characters was not Star Trek. There was no delegating to other crew. It was only the reboot's version of the bridge crew who knew how to do anything. Only Chekhov, for example, could figure out how to run the transporter correctly. Uhura knew all the languages ever spoken, and Sulu's hobby of fencing was now used in a fight scene high above an imploding planet, instead of just using a phaser. And of course, because it was a success, 2009's Star Trek laid ground for two more sequels with diminishing returns for the audience and the studio. This film was literally in development since the late 60s, when Roddenberry thought it might be fun to show how the crew all came to be. But frankly, I think it is explored better in the novels. The following week gave us Ron Howard's sequel to The Da Vinci Code, titled Angels and Demons. Howard had previously worked with Tom Hanks on the hit fantasy comedy Splash, along with John Candy and Daryl Hannah. The story of Angels and Demons essentially expands on the intrigues of the Da Vinci Code by having a number of candidates for the next pope kidnapped by the Illuminati. It's a big honking mystery with lots of twists and turns. Frankly, this is not a series I was ever interested in, as I enjoy the works of Steve Barry far more, and his works do not center around controversial fiction. The only thing I've ever indulged in that was related to this franchise was a reactionary piece by a conservative evangelical who tried to say it was a given fact that Renaissance period men were quote-unquote a little light in the loafers, which is a 20th century euphemism for being gay or bisexual, and that the Da Vinci Code's assertion that Jesus had children with Mary Magdalene was just a way for queer folks to try to undermine Christianity. 
I mean, why would queer folks have to do that when conservative Christians do a great job of isolating themselves, thus undermining their own place in society? But I digress. The film is a rather faithful adaptation of the book, largely thanks to the excellent writing of Copen Goldsman, despite many noted differences, which are mostly nitpicks, and parts of the book that were cut to streamline the story down to 138 minutes. Reception from audiences was positive, and the film made back thrice its budget, which was $150 million, the exact same amount as the aforementioned Star Trek reboot. Before we move on, here's a fun fact. Ron Howard's father, Rance, plays Cardinal Beck. Howard is known for casting family and friends in smaller parts, such as often casting his brother Clint in films like Gung Ho, among many others. Mid-May brings with it one of Ryan Johnson's earliest efforts writing and directing a big studio picture in The Brothers Bloom, an all-star comedy drama. The eponymous brothers Stephen and Bloom Bloom, yes, really, are a couple of conmen working with a Japanese explosives expert named Bang Bang. I really hope that is her alias, because with names like Bloom Bloom and Bang Bang, it is a wonder anyone takes Johnson seriously as a writer. Although the film is set in the modern day, it feels like it's more from a bygone time, traveling on a steamship on the open ocean, for example. Bloom has Disney princess syndrome and wants a life where he isn't pretending to be some character that Stephen came up with for the latest scheme. Bloom calls this ideal an unwritten life. In the one last job trope, Bloom meets the rube they plan on conning, a lonely heiress named Penelope Stamp of the New Jersey Stamps. Bloom meets her, and she reveals that, having been alone most of the time, she took to practicing hobbies like martial arts and juggling, although martial arts usually requires a teacher to help with form. What follows is a globe-trotting adventure from Prague to Mexico and then to Montenegro, despite originally supposedly setting out for Greece. Naturally, with the title characters being con artists, the plot hinges on a liar-revealed plot point and a third-act breakup. The cast includes Mark Ruffalo and Adrian Brody as Stephen and Bloom, respectively, Rachel Weisz as Penelope, Rinko Kikuchi as Bang Bang, and also Maximilian Schell, Robbie Coltrane, and Ricky Jay, who I mentioned earlier. A fun fact for this movie is that Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who previously worked with Ryan Johnson on the film Brick, has a cameo as a bar patron. Also, the film was originally going to be titled Penelope, which I like better. Centering the story on her makes a lot more sense to me, as she is a far more intriguing protagonist. The film was shot around Romania, Serbia, Greece, and Montenegro, and Weiss actually took time to study the skills Penelope has, including several performance tricks and multiple instruments, all during the two weeks scheduled for rehearsals. Additionally, Ryan's brother Nathan composed the film's score, and the film includes songs by Bob Dylan, Cat Stevens, and The Band. Sadly, despite all these interesting facets to the film, it was a bomb, making back barely a quarter of the budget. Critics loved the film, giving it an above-average score, but noting that it does not fulfill all its promises. Not unlike a con man, come to think of it. Ebert noted that the actors do well with the material, but that the film was, in his words, too smug and pleased with itself. As such, I think this one is worth watching once, just to see if it is worth it, or if it falls flat like a number of Johnson's ideas. Also in mid-May, we got the romantic comedy drama Management, with Jennifer Aniston and Steve Zahn. I won't lie, this particular film is weird and creepy. Zahn plays Mike, a guy running his family's motel, who develops a fixation on a guest named Sue, played by Aniston. After some very awkward gestures on his part, mostly involving booze, he goes to find her in Baltimore and ends up winning her over a bit, but not long after she meets his ailing mother, who dies soon after, Sue gets back together with an ex named Django, played by Woody Harrelson. And again, Mike follows her to where she moves in Washington State and skydives into her and Django's pool. Django is not thrilled and threatens Mike. When Sue tells Mike that he's not in control of his life and that she's pregnant and needs stability, 
He gives up the chase and goes to spend some time at a Buddhist monastery before returning to the family motel. I won't tell you how the rest of the story goes, but it has a happy ending. Frankly, this is one of those films wherein the writer, director Steve Belber, seems to be justifying stalking someone. Also, the fact that Mike's family name is Flux is rather lazy writing. Since the story has a happy ending and the characters involved don't mind the unhealthy behavior Mike displays, I guess I'll overlook it, but context matters, and I would not feel comfortable with someone doing the things he does in this film. Next up, written and directed by Rob Williams, a Christmas romantic comedy called Make the Yuletide Gay. Did you see The Happiest Season about the lesbian couple who go home to visit one's family for Christmas, but the daughter isn't out to her family or most anyone in the town? That's the setup here. There's no siblings, but there is an ex from when he pretended to be straight in high school. From what I could look up, there aren't any real details about the story that I could find as many queer films often get ignored. Some fun facts are that Gates McFadden of Star Trek The Next Generation has a cameo in the film, and the movie was later adapted into a novel with its own sequel. Also, the film features Alison Arngrim, best known for playing the mean girl Nellie on Little House on the Prairie, leading to when her character of Heather wishes Anya a Merry Christmas, Anya responds, Don't be such a Nellie. The film was a hit in the film festival crowd and won several awards, so I would give this one a watch. In late May, we got one of my personal favorite films in a popular franchise. The episode that broke the mold and thrilled me from start to finish. Terminator Salvation. Chances are you have seen this one. It was directed by McGee, the same director who brought us Charlie's Angels and its sequel, and featured music by Danny Elfman. It featured an excellent cast, but failed to make back double the budget by roughly $30 million. This was largely due to the budget being a then-insane $200 million. In Hollywood, the rule of thumb is that a film has to bring in double the money spent to be a hit. It was a sprawling epic of survival, expanding on the post-apocalyptic side of the Terminator franchise's time travel premise. Frankly, with a budget that massive, it becomes impossible to make a profit. This was not helped by a notorious on-set breakdown during rehearsals when Christian Bale lost his temper with a crew member who walked in his eyeline. Someone on set recorded it and put it online. This not only tainted the film's reputation, but ruined Bale's chances for making appearances as John Connor. Frankly, I still loved the film and have since then committed to performing the novelization after I finished dramatizing the prequel novel, From the Ashes. If you haven't seen this movie, please do, as it is filled with amazing action, heart-pounding suspense, marvelous spectacle, brilliant acting, and a fantastic plot. The cinematography gives it a rough documentary style reminiscent of the more reportage style of filming that many sci-fi epics were using at the time for that gritty, lived-in, real feeling that helps audiences to suspend their disbelief. Moving on, the Wayans brothers are back with even more of the family producing the spoof dance flick. This is less the scary movie style of spoof, where they just take whatever random flotsam will stick for the dailies from what was popular at the time, and instead they are openly gleaning comedy from the past few years' rise in dance movies, like Hairspray and the aforementioned Love and Dancing, as well as Save the Last Dance. Think of this more like the Wayne's Family spoof of urban crime dramas Don't Be a Menace to South Central While Drinking Your Juice in the Hood. This film features David Alan Greer as a gang lord, and most of the credits include the last name Waynes. It's like a family reunion, for goodness sake. As it is, the film spoofs just about every musical and dance movie you can think of, but falls prey to spoofing less relevant content as well, including Roots, Brokeback Mountain, Crash, Final Destination, Catwoman, Superbad, and Twilight. Dance Flick didn't quite make back double the budget, but got close. I will not kid you, critics did not like this one, giving it low scores all around. And I think that is largely due to the random references to movies outside the genre being spoofed. 
It's not on par with Scary Movie spoofing a Nike ad, but from a writing standpoint, a good writer knows when and how to focus the jokes. Otherwise, it is just references to random crap from all over the place. You get to boldly flee. I think this is one you can watch for a few laughs, but don't expect much. Up next, we have an update to Noel Coward's Easy Virtue, directed and co-written by Stephen Elliott, who's better known by me as the filmmaker behind The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Like a lot of Jazz Age plays, this one is a social comedy in which Larita, an American and widow, has a whirlwind marriage with Englishman John Whitaker when they meet in Monaco at the Grand Prix. But when they go back to Whitaker's family in England, they don't care for her. It's kind of a 1920s version of Meet the Parents, but with genders reversed. The mother-in-law, Hilda, suspects that Larita is a black widow, the kind that marries older men for their money and then causes them to die. Unfortunately, this story does not have a happy ending for all involved. Alfred Hitchcock had previously adapted this play as a silent film back in his early days as a director. It features Jessica Biel, Colin Firth, Kristen Scott Thomas, and Ben Barnes. It got middling reviews, but altogether it grossed around $21 million in theaters. Personally, I'm a fan of Biel and Thomas loving their work from this period of time, from The Illusionist to Keeping Mum. So the idea of seeing them play opposite one another is enticing, given that they're usually terrific in period pieces and costume dramas, I dare say it would be worth it to at least watch this once. Next, we have the long-anticipated The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. Co-written and directed by member of Monty Python's Flying Circus and noted transphobe Terry Gilliam, this was officially the final film of Heath Ledger, as he was in the middle of filming scenes for it when he committed suicide. In the film, Christopher Plummer plays a traveling wizard who uses his magical portal to delight and enlighten guests as part of a traveling troupe with Lily Cole, Vern Troyer, and Andrew Garfield. The film is noted for having other actors fill in for Ledger following his suicide during scenes that take place in the Imaginarium. Johnny Depp, Colin Farrell, and Jude Law. We get a marvelous performance by actor-musician Tom Waits as Mr. Nick, a demon. Ledger plays Tony, a con man who pretends to be a philanthropist and uses a trick of swallowing a metal flute to keep from dying when he is hung by the people he rips off. The majority of the plot kicks in at this point, when Parnassus and Nick strike a bargain of respectively saving or damning five souls before the other one can. I will not spoil it, but this particular film is sloppy in its storytelling as it goes on, and it is no surprise that the movie did not make much of a profit. It was just successful enough, but left many audiences confused with its arthouse narrative and lack of clarity at the beginning. When you compare it to Gilliam's other films, it winds up being like a more depressing version of Jabberwocky than films like Time Bandit's Twelve Monkeys, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, or Brazil which all feature more solid narratives and a balance to the surreal elements of those narratives. Combine this with Gilliam's outspoken mockery of the trans community, and I've genuinely lost respect for him. Steer clear of this one, as it genuinely lacks any real fun for the audience, and before we can engage with the story, many confused, muttering dialogue scenes weigh the film down and bring it to a halt before the story can pick back up. I feel like this project did not have enough people telling Gilliam to rein it in, and make the story clear and compelling. Now in late May of 2009, as we enter the summer season, we got the sequel to one of the most original family adventure comedies I've seen in years, Night at the Museum 2, Battle of the Smithsonian. Written by Robert Ben Grant and Thomas Lennon, both better known for the 90s sketch comedy troupe The State and the Comedy Central spoof Reno 911. It features an all-star cast coming back for an adventure at the biggest museum in the world, the Smithsonian. I will not kid you when I say that the writers stayed true to their vision for the screenplay, letting the director Sean Levy and the cast have some leeway with interpreting the characters in ways that were fun enough without letting them go too far. At a budget of $150 million, the movie made back over $400 million, and led to another live-action sequel in 2014 titled The Secret of the Tomb 
and a Disney Plus animated feature, Common Raw Rises Again. The DVD commentary track featuring Garrett and Lennon is hilarious, as they joke about making the next sequel a 70s-style trucking movie. This is a series that I came to love as an adult for its originality and creativity. Most of us have seen it, but if you've not, then I encourage you to watch the first two in tandem, as it is a lot of fun. And of course, all the various guest stars have a lot of fun in their different parts, from Christopher Guest as Ivan the Terrible to Bill Hader as Custer. And of course, this franchise was many people's first time seeing Rami Malek, who went on to notoriety in the popular series Mr. Robot, and the biopic Bohemian Rhapsody about the band Queen, in which Malick played Freddie Mercury. At the same time that audiences were being delighted by the Battle of the Smithsonian, others were being tormented by John Wright. Tormented is a long, winding yarn telling a story of death, hostility, castration, and multiple murders. Produced on a budget of 700,000 British pounds, it did not even make back half its budget. No surprise. You can tell that they were essentially thinking they could capitalize on the murder porn trend from films like Saw and Hostel. You hire some lesser-known young actors to play high schoolers, and then just make sure the various murder scenes are graphic and bizarre. But reviews were middling, and noted that the filmmakers relied on cliches from American slashers. With quips to make the film a bit more comedic, I think audiences must have been unsure how to respond. When a notable feature of the murder porn genre of horror movies is that there are no quips and such. The satisfaction is often taken in seeing bad people suffer by the end. I never got much into this genre, finding it wholly unsatisfying, as I prefer suspense. So, if you're squeamish like me, then give this one a miss. A week after audiences were tormented, they got dragged to hell. In Drag Me to Hell, Sam Raimi, co-writing with his brother Ivan, tells us a story about why you should not mess with travelers, a.k.a. the Romani. Apparently, the Raimi brothers got the idea for the project before Sam started work on the Spider-Man films. It won a few notable awards and made a significant profit for 20th Century Fox. However, I will not avoid the fact that this film is gross. Not just because the subject of the film is a banker who denies an old woman an extension on her mortgage, but because this film features graphic scenes of vomit and sputum. Despite it winning awards and making a profit, the plot is rather predictable, whether you have seen films like Thinner, which also involved a curse, or Raimi's best-loved series Evil Dead. This film left no room for sequels, and had less of a cult impact as his other features, like Dark Man and others. Up next, some lighter fare. The Maiden Heist stars Morgan Freeman, Marcia Gay Harden, William H. Macy, and Christopher Walken. In a comedy heist movie par excellence, the story centers around three guards at an art museum that is set to remove many pieces, including each of their personal favorites. They concoct a scheme involving making perfect copies, but at this point, I'm wondering, if you have perfect copies, why steal the originals? Well, because otherwise we would not have a heist movie. Anyway, I will not spoil the rest of the film, but I have watched and enjoyed this particular film, which was genuinely funny. Unfortunately, the reason why most people have not heard of it is because the distributor, Yari Film Group, went belly up. So it was released on DVD in November of 2009. A fun fact about this movie is that the titular painting, The Lonely Maiden, of The Maiden Heist, was created by professional artist Jeremy Lipking solely for this film. Filming was shot on location in Boston and in Worcester at the Worcester Art Museum. Next, we have one of Pixar's most heart-wrenching films, Up, starring Ed Asner, Christopher Plummer, and Jordan Nagai. I do not think I have to tell you what the movie is about, but in this story, Carl Fredrickson works at a zoo selling balloons. Despite a long and happy life with his wife, Ellie, they are not able to have children, and always dream of visiting exotic lands like Paradise Falls. With some people wanting his property to be demolished in favor of more urban sprawl, 
He shanghais enough balloons and helium to lift up his and Ellie's house and fly it down to Paradise Falls, just like she always wanted. And then he discovers an accidental stowaway, Russell, a pudgy eight-year-old who is an unlicensed spoof of the Boy Scouts called Wilderness Explorers. Since this is only the start of the film, I will not spoil anything further, but many people have already seen this movie loads of times, so there's no need to rehash the whole thing. I will say that the ending, much like the opening montage, is a tearjerker that tugs on your heartstrings, so expect an emotional ride that is ultimately uplifting. The last film I will cover for May is coincidental to our previous movie, titled What Goes Up. Named for the popular idiom, What Goes Up Must Come Down. This film stars Hilary Duff, Steve Coogan, and Molly Shannon, among others and it is a comedy drama set in Concord, New Hampshire in 1986. It centers on a reporter who finds out that an old friend self-ended, which leads him to the friend's class of dysfunctional high schoolers. While this seems like a really odd premise for a comedy, I have seen worse, and it has me curious. The film was panned by critics and subsequently bombed at the box office, but not everyone hated it. Salon.com called it dark, droll, and sentimental in roughly the correct proportions, while Noel Murray of the AV Club said the writers show a deep understanding of how common ideals can hold even a community of outsiders together. And Pete Hammond and Jeffrey Lyons both deemed it wonderful. So I think that if we give it a shot, this one could be a bit of a cult film. A little trivia for this film is that it had the alternate title of Safety Glass, and it also has a rather interesting soundtrack, including an original song by Hilary Duff called Any Other Day. That is all for part two. I'll see you next time for part three.